0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if I went back and listened to, I went back and listened to three um, episodes in preparation for this, but they were recent ones. If I went back and listened to the very first episodes you did you were almost certainly not as good an interviewer back then as you are now. What has allowed you to be a better interviewer is just seeing those patterns and doing it over and over again. What has allowed you to do it over and over again is deciding to be a podcast host. That is a positioning decision you made that then landed you in front of many repeated patterns. And then you started to notice those patterns and articulate them, even if you never written them down. So it's just it illustrates exactly. And I, every expert is an expert because of pattern matching. And the only way you put yourself in the right place to be noticing similar patterns is to make a really smart positioning decision. So that's how
0: it all connects in, in my mind. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit
2: plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: Hold up. What was that?
0: David, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I
1: am very glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this quite some time. I, I show up as a guest on a whole bunch of podcasts, and is it okay to say I'm not excited about all of them, but this one I'm very excited about?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you for the, those kind words. We, we hope we'll, we'll live up to, uh, to your expectations. So... Uh, You know, I came across your work because somebody on your team wrote in, they told me a little bit about your book. And as I was saying, just before we hit record here, it was not just the book, but when I read your bio and your background, I thought, oh yeah, there's definitely a really interesting story here. But before we get into all of that, I would like to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you made with (laughs)
1: them? What did they do for a living? Okay. So what I tell people they did is that they were medical missionaries, uh, and they were. uh, So they were missionaries, in in this Protestant mission and dad did dental work, mom did nursing work, and then together they did literacy work. That's not the whole story. The whole story is that beyond that, they also did church planning, but I'm not all that uh, proud of that part of their lives, so I don't usually mention that. But now, of course, I've just done it to the world. right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that we did that in in uh, the highlands of Guatemala, which we, and we lived there during uh, the height of the civil war. So I was there. I was born in the U.S. I'm a U.S. citizen, but left when I was, you know, too young to remember anything, and I was four, and didn't come back to live in the U.S. until I was 18. And I was basically just dragged around based on what my parents were doing. We spent a year in Costa Rica first, learning Spanish. They were in Spanish school for a year. I you know you know with kids you can just drop them in anywhere and they learn a language so I still vividly remember getting dropped into a Spanish kindergarten and with no trauma whatsoever so we were there for a year and then we went to Guatemala and lived in this incredibly remote uh You know no electricity, no running water, no roads, no stores, no gas stations and that 's where I lived for thirteen years till I came to the u s and thoroughly embarrassed myself, trying to fit into the culture, which I was
0: not used to at the time <laughs> Wow, okay, so many questions already. Uh- you mentioned they were medical missionaries and you brought up church. And I wonder, uh, one, did you grow up with a particular set of religious or spiritual beliefs? And two, uh, how have those evolved over the course of your life?
1: Yes, I did grow up with them, but it was really a borrowed set of beliefs. I didn't know that at the time, but I was following in their footsteps and I was a dutiful son. So it was Protestant, Christian um, upbringing. I um, I'm I'm not that interested in organized religion at the moment. There's so many things that are disgusting about it to me, but I haven't chucked the whole thing. I find that I'm definitely a person of faith. So I believe there's a God. I believe it matters how we live. Beyond that, it gets pretty murky for me. Um, so there was, you know, I, it was a borrowed faith, and then I just went, ran from it, uh, overdid it, running away from it. And then I've come back to a very comfortable place where i consider myself a person of faith, but not a person of religion, so to speak. I don't know if that makes sense to people. Some people probably understand that.
0: Yeah. I think that in my mind, I think when you try to force anything on anybody, they're going to resist it. And usually when you let, you know, go of trying to force them on it, they tend to come back to it on their own. I wonder, do you think that that was the case with you as well? I think it was, although I honestly, I felt really lied to for so many years.
1: And that's really what got me to pursue, um, you know, higher ed in that space, learning original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, Greek, because I would hear these, these preachers talk and they would kind of, you know, step out of normal English and say, now the original text says such and such. And I was thinking, oh, you know, wow, that's pretty amazing. But of course, at that point, when they started saying that, I lost all ability to verify it because I just didn't know any of those original languages. That's what got me into wanting to learn them. And so I felt really cheated, honestly, because I felt like uh, the rest of the world wasn't given a chance to, it, it was a very much us versus them I'm grateful for, you know what, missionaries are really entrepreneurs who can't work for anybody else. I've figured that out over time. And I really admire a lot of the values that my parents instilled in me.
0: But I, I'm just not on that boat, so to speak now. But yeah, interesting. So you mentioned that you spent 13 years in a place with what sounds like no technology whatsoever, uh, almost Amish sounding from the way that you described it. And I wonder, what did you bring back from that that you apply to your life today uh, in a world in which we're completely inundated with technology to the point where people probably in places like that even have access to cell phones? They do, because I go back and I visit once or
1: twice a year and the little village, it was called San Miguel Acatan. It was above a, a place called Huehuetenango in Guatemala. And I go back and visit and virtually sun changed, except now there's a cell tower in the middle of the village and and all these um, Indian, Mayan Indian folks are running around with cell phones to their ears. But so they skipped the whole phone wired, phone slash wired generation. You know, the only technology we had was ham radio. So we would, conduct uh, one way conversations back and forth to uh, places around the world you know what i what I came back to the u s with is partly and this is a little bit hard to describe but a very i, I think it's a it's a world centric ver- versus a country centric view But the main thing beyond that, and that's pretty obvious, I guess, but the main thing beyond that is just recognizing that so many of the things that we think are so central to our lives are just constructs of our particular time in history. And I think we could be so much more flexible than we are. For instance, I was having breakfast with a neighbor this morning at the, we call it the awful house around here. It's a waffle house, but we we're having breakfast there and we were talking, they they took their kids out of school. They go to public school, three young kids. They took them out for six months and toured the country. And we were talking about how much more beneficial that was to those kids than the normal school. And I think that, you know, we work so hard to have the perfect setup for our kids, the exact right education uh, the right job opportunities and everything without realizing that this stuff kind of takes care of itself and we get lost in our bubbles and feel like okay our kids have to have their own car they have to have their own phone they have to go to these schools they have to start school when they're four they have to be in the right ones. It's like really is it that is life really that fragile like in w- where I grew up, you know, my parents weren't all that interested in teaching me. They were busy doing other things. So they ordered this correspondence course and then they just dropped it on me and said, all right, go go to town. And, And so I taught myself all those years in school and it was fine. I don't know that I missed anything. And it makes me wonder sometimes how we could be so much more flexible and so much more interesting in our lives if we didn't accept as normal everything that's thrown at us. We don't have to go to school at three. We don't have to go to high school. We don't have to go to college. We don't have to follow these career paths. We don't have to get married at this this time, but everybody around us is doing it. And we don't understand that it
0: could be different. I'm just rambling now. No, 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 this is fantastic. I think it makes a perfect setup to my next question. Uh, you seem to have been in an environment in which you were pretty much immune to the social programming that most of us experience through media, culture, parents, peer society. Uh, I wonder, how do we overcome that if we weren't in a situation where we weren't, you know, exposed to a significant amount of social programming?
3: Mm,
1: yeah, my friends would say, David, it's too bad you didn't have more social programming, probably, because <laughs> I, I just am um, a little bit of a loner and um, acceptance of me is not as important as I think it probably normally would just because I wasn't around people like me for so many years. I wish I had the answer to that. We we have grown children who are both married, both have kids. We took a quite different approach in raising them. We didn't feel like we were doing it just to be different. We just felt like okay, let's let's step back here and let's let's figure out what's really essential and what isn't. Okay, so what's really essential with a child would be to read to them a lot. The other is to play with them, to spend time with them and not have babysitters all the time. The other is, um, you know, get them... Buy things for them that will enhance their creativity. So I remember buying a really expensive video camera for Nathan when he was, I think it was seven. And, and we didn't have much money at the time. We paid over $1,000 for it. And I remember our, our friends saying, what in the world? You're That's totally wasted. He'll break that within a couple of weeks. He didn't. You know, he, he was pretty careful with it. But the stuff he did with that was so amazing. We also, we just said, okay no tv until you're i think it was 14. We didn't have one for ourselves either. It's not like there's anything magic there. Then I remember one day them saying to me, "Okay, Dad, uh when can we start dating?" And uh Julie and I, my wife looked at each other and we kind of talked about it and came back to them and said, "How about when you're 17?" And you know, they're they're freaking out. It's like, "What, 17? Like that's crazy." And they said, so what's the, you know, what's magic about 17? I said, nothing. I just, it's like, I just made a decision. I don't know that it matters all that much. Then, of course, the younger one comes to me and quietly uh, by himself and he says, dad, you know, I I understand for Jonathan, but I'm not going to be as good at this as he is. I think I should be able to start earlier, you know, but just not being afraid to be different and and looking at your world and saying, Okay, how can we raise them? and.'" we're in the end we're going to accept a lot of the convention that the world sends our way but let's think about it as an outsider why do we have to do all of this stuff and i just feel like we we're a little afraid to be different sometimes we don't want to be different just to be different but we should be filtering these decisions that we're making if
0: we're really trying to encourage our kids to be creative mm, wow so given the way that you were educated and the way that you were brought up if somebody asked you to come into our school system and redesign the curriculum and the way students that are, are, are taught today, how would you do it based on where the world is headed?
1: Yeah. You know, and I use when, when our kids were in elementary school, I made it a point to teach uh, guest teach every every semester because I wanted to be connected to my kids' friends. And I also wanted their teachers to know me. I felt like they might treat my kids a little bit more respectfully if they knew me, if they had a, an image of my face in there. So, so I would go in and it was really and I loved it. I mean, one one year I I set up a whole photography lab and taught them how to take pictures and that was so much fun. What I would do differently is I would not start school so early. Obviously, I'm never going to get elected to any school board after you hear this. Right. I'm also (laughs) I'm also not going to expect the school system to do what I think parents should be doing. I think it's ridiculous. I would never want to be a teacher full time because these teachers are having to be parents without the authority to be parents. I would not set up babysitting. To me, a lot of education, elementary ed, seems to me it enables the parents to um, not have to worry about what to do with the kids until they get home. And I don't think that's the role of school. I would also spend a lot more time uh, playing, supervised playing. I would spend a lot more time reading. I would spend less time on math. Oh goodness. do uh, you think people are still listening to this episode the way I'm going
0: on here? <laughs> yeah, I think they are.
1: <laughs> I just think we've gotten it so wrong, you know. I I don't know where And look at the and, and look at the result of our schooling. It doesn't seem to be all that effective. It seems we're pouring so much money and it's becoming a very expensive socially conscious babysitting service and I I I wish somebody would have the courage to rethink the whole thing, but it just seems like it's
0: almost the third rail. We can't touch that education thing, really. Mm, Wow. Well, speaking of education, so you came back from this time in Guatemala. One, did you experience some level of reverse culture shock and and what was adapting to, uh, you know, the American culture like after spending so much time there? And from having read your bio, what I've gathered is that your path, like most people that I talk to, is anything but linear. So can you walk us through how you get from Guatemala to being the guy who writes a book on the business of expertise? (laughs) Yeah. So that's
1: the fifth book. Uh, Not all of them have been good. The first one was so much of a pretty much a disaster. It was a ghost written book on the, um, the genetic underpinnings of seed corn. Thank goodness nobody ever read that, I don't think. I... The, the culture shock was pretty significant. I, my first memory of what was happening in the U.S. was listening to the Nixon impeach, impeachment uh, trial or hearings um, on Armed Forces Radio over a wave, And I was just fascinated by this. I didn't know what was going on or anything. It just felt like such a different world to me because for news, we usually listen to the BBC. So I, I came back to the U.S. and the first time I really lived here for a while was when I was 18 and I was visiting on that first trip I was visiting a a friend of my parents in Little Rock Arkansas and if I remember the the dates right um, the the day we got there this guy named Elvis died and I had no idea who he was but we stayed up all night watching movies of Elvis the actor and I thought. I kept thinking to myself, what in the world are we doing? This guy is a terrible actor. I don't understand why everybody is so broken up about his death. And I discovered the next morning that he was a musician who also was an actor. That was the first time I'd heard of him. So, and then, you know, then the next afternoon I'm walking down the street and this, this guy comes up to me and I was walking on the street and he came over to me, um, walking on the lawn and he said, Hey, do you want to buy some grass? and um and he had some what looked like grass in a little plastic bag and i thought oh, why would i buy grass i mean i could just reach down here and grab it i just you know i didn't i had no idea what that was i remember <laughs> going to the going to the uh, uh, the air back then you flew from latin america into new orleans instead of dallas or miami like you do now and and flew in there and i'm by myself in the men's restroom and i uh finished my um finish urinating and I walk over to wash my hands and I'm just really impressed with this sink. It's this huge stainless steel wide sink with the water running all the time and I come up and I put my hands in it. Then you have to turn the faucet on. Very impressed with this. Uh, like what an innovation in the U.S. that they've come up with this sink idea. And then, then other men come in and start um, peeing next to me as I'm washing my hands in what turns out to be a urinal, I thought it was a sink. So it's like this stuff just happens over and over and over again. And it's, it, it's funny now, but at the time it was yeah kind of embarrassing. Uh, but so many things, I wish I'd kept a journal back then because so many things struck me as odd because I just hadn't seen them. And then of course, where I was really at a major disadvantage was in, in playing any kind of game like Trivial Pursuit where you had to understand and remember elements of the culture. And all of that escaped me. I just like I was the worst partner. Everybody would draw straws and hope they didn't get me as their partner in Trivial Pursuit because I just simply didn't know any of those things. But it also gave me a slightly different perspective. I think my the way I look at things is almost always to turn them upside down and say, "Okay, what are What are the assumptions that I'm bringing to the the solution as I try to solve this problem? And many times those those assumptions that I'm making and that your listeners are making, you know, and the people around us are making are are just crazy assumptions that don't really necessarily make sense. But then so you come up with a slightly different perspective and you verbalize it. And everybody around you is looking at you like you're some some somebody from a foreign planet or something, because the idea seems so strange, and then after they think about it a little bit more, they realize, oh that's that's unconventional, but that's a really interesting idea. So you know, back to your question i, I it was really traumatic that coming back here at 18 was much more difficult than moving down there when i was 4 i just accepted everything at that point and i just had no idea how how the us worked really i am there's still some things that confuse me but i'm caught
0: on to a lot of it anyway <laughs> So how do you get from there to, you know, writing this book? I know you've done a bunch of other really interesting things in your career. I wonder, what has the trajectory been like?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, I should have answered that question better. <laughs> um, I, so I, I was in grad school and I was headed for the same sort of field my parents were. And halfway through, I realized, oh my goodness, this is not for me. Then I thought, okay, I'll teach ancient languages, those dead languages in, um, in graduate school in some place in the world. And about halfway through that program, this was a five years full-time in grad school, halfway through that program, I realized that the the whole higher ed environment was pretty political. I decided that, okay, I need to, this isn't really for me. But I was halfway through it. We had kids. I was working full-time, thought, I'll just finish this. Lying on the couch one day, reading the newspaper, and I it just struck me how poorly the job uh, other firms were doing at marketing, I thought, okay, I kind of understand the human psyche. Maybe I can, maybe I can run a marketing firm. So I started one, uh, accidental entrepreneur really, uh, but it grew into a 16 person firm, did that for six years. Part of my, um, part of how I learned how to do things was a subscription that I had. I'm just fast forwarding real quickly here, but it was a subscription to a publication. You got to call the editor and ask him questions as a part of the Subscription. It didn't cost any more money. And so we developed this rapport. And one day I said to him, Cam, why don't you do consulting to these people instead of just a publication? He wasn't interested for his own reasons, but he said, why don't you do it? Before I could answer, he said, I'll put an ad in the publication and you just give me 10 percent of whatever you make. And I thought, well, maybe I don't like I can't imagine people calling, but why not? What do I have to lose? People started calling immediately. And that was the launch of what's now called Recourses. I've been doing this for 24 years where I work with entrepreneurial experts. And so I was drinking from a water hose in those first few days. But the thing that changed my life entirely from a business perspective is that I was spending a lot of money trying to get clients, especially in those early days. And I thought, all right, I've got to figure out, a way to get clients without spending all this money. And I decided to do, you know, nowadays it's called content marketing. At the time, it wasn't really a thing. I decided to develop an email list on a website. If I write a lot of content, then people will come and then I don't have to pay. And then when I need some work, I'll just ask them if they need some help. So that was the beginning of two and a half decades of writing as good an insight as I could muster. And I loved writing. I discovered that that's, for me, it's almost like an addiction. If I'm not writing enough, I start to shake. I start to get grumpy. I start to feel unsettled. I don't know where I fit in the world. And I decided that I don't know exactly where this will head, but I need, writing needs to be a part of who I am. I need to I, for me, it's not coming up with things that are worth talking about and then articulating them. For me, the clarity comes in the articulation. And so, if I'm not writing, I'm not getting clear on things. And so, it naturally evolved into a ghost writing the first book, the really nasty book, and then writing four other books, including this most recent one on expertise. And this one has been very different than the others because it's been a very passionate manifesto for me. It wasn't like the earlier ones, which were very similar to kind of a, I don't know, an encyclopedia article. They were like reference volumes. This one comes from inside me. I, I feel so strongly that people who deserve it should be experts, should know how to act as experts, should know how to position themselves, how to charge. And so this was my attempt to help the world. I, I'm pleased that it's been received exceedingly well, but I
0: would have written it even if it hadn't, just honestly. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to get into uh, the entire idea of expertise, how we become experts, how we charge for our expertise and all of that. But uh, there are two other threads here that I didn't want to let go before we get into all of that. The fact that you were both an airline and helicopter pilot. Hmm. Where do those two things fit into all of this? Well, they kind of fit because I get bored easily. So,
1: you know, growing up in, in that country, aviation is kind of how you get from one place to the other sometimes. So I developed this love of, of flying just as an observer and, and, and a passenger. And uh, on my 30th birthday, I remember driving past this airport to get to my office. I had to pass this airport every day going to and from work. And I just thought, why don't I just do this? This just seems interesting. And I was working for a company at the time that needed a corporate pilot. Of course, usually when you need a corporate pilot, you want somebody who has experience doing it. But they were game <laughs> and <laughs> they were game and paying for all of it for me, not just getting the, the private license for fixed wing is what it's called for airplane. And then rotorcraft is what it's called for helicopter. They were game to pay for it, but then pay for all the other ratings that I got. Um, including instrument rating and so on, and then I used that for that company, and then I used it for myself. Had a plane and flew myself all over the country for consulting engagements, speaking engagements, and then on my 40th birthday, I thought, "Okay, this fixed wing stuff is boring me. You're only necessary to take off and land, or if something goes bad. Otherwise, you're just setting the autopilot and you're just working away. So I thought I would um, stretch myself and do the helicopter thing and I didn't think it would be that big an issue. Um, it turned out to be much harder than I thought. It was really a humbling experience. Uh, but actually, I love both. There's, I don't know what it is. It's it's something about getting above all of the issues that are crowding into your life and getting a slightly bigger perspective. You look down on Earth on the issues that you're struggling with and you see it in a slightly different light. It seems smaller to you. You feel like you're looking down on yourself, like you're having an out-of-body experience. And even in bad weather, especially if it's overcast, you climb through those clouds and you bust out and it's always sunny above those clouds. There's just, um, it's really influenced my life when I think about, um, there's, I mean, we could go on and on for hours just talking about, all of the parallels between flying and business and so on, it's um, it's it's you can tell as I talk
0: about it, it's a real deep love of mine. What did you learn about habits, systems and decision making from those two experiences that you've applied to your life going forward?
1: Mm. Well, wow. that that's that's like a diving board into <laughs> the whole flying thing, because look at how I don't know what the numbers are, but, you know, there's got to be tens of thousands of flights flights every day and how safe it is, to me, that demonstrates the value of repeatable training and processes. Like, wow, that is amazing to think about how few accidents there are, given all the variables out there. The other thing, and this one, so that one's been with me a long time. This one is something I've only been thinking about the last week, but it's seared in my conscious. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with this, but. The best model I know of for management and teaching is the flight instructor, because the flight instructor has to snatch the controls back right before both of you die. If he grabs them too early, you don't really learn. And. He is sitting over there. He has a copy of the controls. He can, he can grab them at any point. I don't know why I'm saying he. All of my instructors were females, actually. Um, she can grab the controls at any point, but she has to talk me through things, and she can't, if she keeps stepping in, I will never learn. And that's such a great metaphor for how we teach people to be adults, how we teach them to be leaders and managers, letting them make mistakes. And um, grabbing the controls only in an absolute emergency. I, I don't know that we're really good. I think we grab the controls too quickly in some cases.
0: Uh wow. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and start getting into this entire idea of the business of expertise, because I think that what struck me most about the way that you laid this out was you gave people a framework that could be applied to virtually any situation, uh, One. Where did this framework come from? And then uh, let's get into the details. And I think where I want to start is with this. You said that pattern matching is the basis of all intelligence. The concept of pattern matching has particular relevance to the motion of expertise and how we develop expertise. And that struck me in particular because of the fact that I've talked to more than 700 people. And I think that inevitably what starts to happen is you begin to notice patterns.
1: Mm. Right. You, as the podcast get, um, host notice patterns. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And if I went back and listened to, I went back and listened to three, um, episodes in preparation for this, but they were recent ones. If I went back and listened to the very first episodes you did, You were almost certainly not as good an interviewer back then as you are now. What has allowed you to be a better interviewer is just seeing those patterns and doing it over and over again. What has allowed you to do it over and over again is deciding to be a podcast host. That is a positioning decision you made that then landed you in front of many repeated patterns. And then you started to notice those patterns and articulate them, even if you've never written them down. You're a much so it's just it illustrates exactly. And I, every expert is an expert because of pattern matching. And the only way you put yourself in the right place to be noticing similar patterns is to make a
0: really smart positioning decision. So that's how it all connects. And in my mind, yeah. So we'll get into positioning. So I, I happen to be the beneficiary of the fact that I have the podcast and, and an, an opportunity to notice patterns. And that's taken the better part of 700 interviews in 10 years. Is the ability to develop your capacity for pattern matching something that simply just takes time because you need so much data in order to develop it? I, I don't know how much time you need.
1: Really intelligent people can notice some provisionary patterns provisional pattern pattern excuse me um after two or three opportunities and really smart people who contribute to their world in that way i think they are so naturally curious that they notice things that most of the rest of the world doesn't but and i mean even silly things so they check into a hotel and if you stopped them right after they got in their room, they set their suitcase down and you stopped them at that moment and said, all right, tell me all the little things you noticed when you came in here. And you, these wouldn't have been relevant to you unless you had checked into 500 other hotels. They would probably be able to list 30 or 40 things immediately off the top of their head that the way they're wired is to observe things. They just notice things that other people don't. And that's what, that's what allows them to process. And uh, it's just such an interesting world. I, you know, what really set me on this path was watching that movie, A Beautiful Mind. You remember when mm. John Nash is in that room and the code is rolling down the walls and he notices patterns in that in the enemy code that nobody else does That's what really prompted this whole book idea is that he saw the patterns when other people didn't. And there was something in his case, it wasn't so much, you know, he'd seen so many lines of code roll down the walls. It was that he was super intelligent and he could pick out
0: those patterns and other people couldn't. Yeah. So, you know, we look at pattern matching as the basis of intelligence and expertise what if somebody feels like they're not an expert in anything or they don't have any expertise? Uh, One, how do they discover what their expertise is? And then two, how do you take that and position that uh, in a way that leads to premium pricing, which I know is something you talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people who
1: feel like they don't have expertise in my experience really do have expertise, but they're so used to seeing it in themselves that it doesn't strike them as odd. It, Uh, and, And then so that that first stage is they don't feel like they're experts, an outsider that might be in a better position to make that judgment call does see that they're an expert. And then that second stage is when the marketplace begins to see that they have expertise and wants and, and creates some sort of demand. When the marketplace regularly wants to pay you for your thinking, that's when I think the real expertise begins in a way that confirms how you should be feeling. But a lot of people are actually quite, that uh, they're full of a lot more expertise than they think earlier than they think. and. These are the kind of people that they just take for granted everything they learn. But but if if you have an expert interviewer, like I don't mean a formal one, but you're sitting next to somebody in a plane and you have a few minutes to talk and uh, you ask what they're doing, just what they've done for a living, just politely, and they tell you and then you start and and you say, OK, I know a little bit about that and I am not stupid, Um then you start asking them questions and you have 10 or 15 aha moments things that you didn't even realize and this, up until this point that person that you're talking to didn't really think of themselves as an expert but the right person asking the right questions helps them put their expertise into context and so i find it's odd to me but i some people who who call themselves experts i'm not that impressed with and other people who don't call themselves experts i'm really I love talking to people. I love pulling that out, whether whatever their expertise is. So it's, it's not easy to know really for yourself, how much of an expert you are. I think the only way you know for sure is if clients are willing to pay you regularly for your thinking. Now I'm talking about expertise from a a thought leadership standpoint, not so much expertise like in a craft standpoint. So you're really amazing. You're amazing at building guitars. Mm-hmm. That's, That's expertise, but that's not the kind of expertise I'm
0: talking about. Yeah. So one other thing that you said, and I think this is particularly relevant to the world we live in, uh, you said a hobby costs you money and many of you who are peddling expertise are really engaging in a hobby. You aren't taking it seriously, aren't making the tough, uh, positioning business decisions, aren't being all that courageous and aren't applying the daily discipline to execute your plan, uh, that struck me in particular because of the fact that we live in this world of everybody being a media company or everybody being a content creator with unlimited access to resources and distribution channels virtually for free. And it can make us feel like we're engaging in something that is a business when in reality it is a hobby. So how do you, how do you distinguish between those two things? And why is this so common?
1: It is so common and it's also so tough because the signal to noise ratio out there is just astronomical. The delta between those two can just keep you awake at night when you think about how in the world am I going to stand out in this world? I, thinking about how the world has been Googleized as well can be so deflating. You know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, you were an expert, but you were an expert largely because... People only had access to a certain number of experts in your area of expertise within that certain geography around them. So there was limited competition, also limited opportunity. Google came along and Googleized our world. And when that happened, uh, consumers' expectations changed drastically almost overnight. Now we have this expectation that we, on almost any subject, well, we could just eliminate the word almost on any subject within seconds, we can find exactly what we need and it will be free. I was having to, and you know, we bought a 61 piece uh, acre piece of property recently. And, and there's a third of a mile gravel roll road that desperately needs to be rebuilt. And I, I get the equipment. That's the easy part. And I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do this without killing myself? And, you know, rolling a piece of equipment over on myself and I'm lying in bed at night thinking about that. I say, oh, I know, I just go to YouTube. There'll be a bunch of fools that have more time on their hands than they need and they will have put together all kinds of videos telling me exactly how to do this and I'll find it instantly and the information will be free. Well, that's exciting if you need to build a road, but if you're trying to be an expert, how in the world are you going to make a really good living when all of this other information is out there, right? It just demonstrates how important it is to be narrow, narrow, narrow and dig really, really deep. But that's not enough. You also have to have a point of view, a clear point of view that will resonate with your audience, with some of your audience. The folks that it doesn't resonate with, they are going to want to dismiss you and move on. We can't be afraid to have a watershed attraction point in our point of view Um, so it's not just neat deep knowledge but also this perspective or this point of view that at the end of it anybody listening or reading or whatever is going to say oh i want more of that or they're going to say i want less of that The, the the thing that terrifies me in today's world is to be ignorable is to be not remembered and We don't want to be controversial just to be remembered, but we have to have a clear point of view. People in all of this information that we have out there, people are more confused than ever. The information is not the solution to the world's problems. Over and over again, we've seen that that's the case in all of this noise. People want clearer perspectives, simpler perspectives. They want stuff that resonates. And as an expert, your job is to bring that pattern matching and intelligence and courage to the situation and objectivity as an outsider. That's the essence of what consulting or advising means or being an expert. I know I'm kind of yelling here, but I just feel really passionate about it. The world doesn't need an expertise that's less than that. They need objectivity and courage and a clear point of view. And that's what this book is about, is how to develop it. I mean, it's just a little handbook. So I don't, I don't know how, how far can we get with a little handbook, but I want to set people off on the right path where it's almost like a license to learn. Let's quit making shit up. Let's Let's really know what we're talking about and giving people something for their money. It's not that hard. The incompetence of the world around us should be an everlasting source of hope. It's not that difficult to be helpful to people. And, you know, paying attention to our craft can, it's not as hard as it seems. It takes discipline, it takes courage, but the world is hungry for experts. And it's such a great way to make a living. I'm excited about it still. Yeah. Um,
0: Well, that, for me, raises a question of uh, what happens when we start to automate a lot of jobs. You, you talked about the role that having access to information has played. So I wonder, from your perspective, I, I, the only reason this is fresh on my mind is I was watching this documentary last night, and they were showing all the things that robotics and AI were doing. And I was thinking to myself, wow, robots are making lattes. And yeah, that yeah. probably would be a lot more efficient than the guy at my Starbucks who makes a latte. Right and he wouldn't insist on talking
1: to you if you're tired in the morning and haven't had your coffee yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh I think, you know, people who make lattes ought to be terrified, you know, but there's always going to be this niche uh for people who don't want to buy a latte from a machine and they'll pay even more for it and 95% of the world won't care and they'll be glad to buy a latte for less money made by a by a, a computer. I uh I know Almost everybody around me is terrified about the influence of AI on the job market. I'm not. I just don't think it's going to be an issue. I think this will settle out partly because, in spite of all of the billions of dollars and the really smart people doing this, when I call up um, UPS to track a package, they still don't get it right. I, it, it's, We are so, we are decades away from this ever being so good that it doesn't frustrate people. And I know that there will be segments of our world that will be totally dominated by AI. And if I were in one of those segments, I would be justifiably terrified, but. Um, as it is, I think we still have decades left and we'll figure it out. We're still the ones programming this stuff, so I'm not too worried about it. It makes for great movie fodder, but <laughs> in real life, I don't think
0: it's something we need to worry about, honestly. yeah. Well, so you talk about this idea of the why for your entrepreneur, entrepreneurial expertise, which you – uh basically divide into values, purpose, mission, and vision. And I wonder how you, one, figure out those four things and then align them uh, so that you can tie it together, not just for impact, but for wealth as well. In other words, I guess, how do you tie all this together and get paid for your expertise? Yeah, because it is important. uh, Absent that, we as
1: humans are probably going to go down the money path or control path, which isn't good for anybody long-term. So I'm trying to avoid that on the other side of the road. I'm trying to avoid somebody that just simply wants to do good, but doesn't care enough about making a living. And while that sounds really noble, it's not sustainable. You, you can't send your college, your kids to college on that. Plus you'll get tired of it. Money will keep you interested in running a business that's smartly run. Um, but beyond that, the, the world doesn't want to listen to experts that are cheap. It's just even if you don't need the money, you need to be charging a lot of money because nobody's going to listen to you unless you do. So it's it's a matter of combining two things primarily. And then some people need to add a third one. I, I'm not one of those, but some people do. The, the two things that to me seem non-negotiable in expertise giving is that you need to really be moving the needle on behalf of right fit clients now if it's not a right fit client then don't worry about it they weren't a fit for you and if you didn't have any impact that shouldn't keep you up at night the other is that you should be making a lot of money for all the reasons that i mentioned those those two things i trust you folks your listeners i trust you with the money more than i would any governed entity or any organization i i want people to make decisions with a lot of money so i want people to have money and not organizations not the government so those are the two non-negotiables now some people want to add a third as i think about all of this mission values you know vision and stuff that third one is they want to make sure that they really enjoy their work i think I'm not an advocate of not enjoying your work, but I don't think it should be essential. If you do enjoy your work, then I think you should be very grateful for that and love it even more. But I think there, it's okay to require uh, that you do a lot of things that you simply don't enjoy. If they come with being an expert, then you should do them. If I mean, you don't enjoy research, but if you need to be a smart expert, uh based on research then you better do research even if you don't enjoy it and so on so all of these things it's, it's really to try and keep us out of both ditches people that mean well and never make money and don't have much impact and then people who are driven by money and control and i'm trying to keep things in the middle it's very aspirational though i uh, you know i'm uh I'm not an official B Corp, but I was the first service firm in Tennessee to file for a new entity uh, that they that the legislature um, created that says that I need to have a particular purpose and I need to report on it every year. And I really believe in that. I, I have a mission at the end of this thing. I want to have made money. I want to have made an impact. I want to have made a huge impact even in the people that never hired me. That's partly why I keep writing as well, because I have an opportunity to reach a larger audience of people who would never work with me if they're in their right minds, right? So yeah, <laughs> it, all, it all fits together.
0: So uh, I guess that, that leads me to the question, I think that I've asked probably more than a handful of guests at this point. Why do we see such a variation in results, uh, particularly when it comes to this area of your life? Like, why do you have a, the 1% And the 99 percent, I mean, you in particular have a unique view into this, given uh, what you've just said.
1: Yeah. And this comes up when a prospective client contacts me and we're on the phone. And usually towards the end, they don't usually lead with this question, but they'll say, well, how impactful is your work? And you know I'll pause not because I need to but because I want them to think I'm reflecting even though I know what the answer is and I'll say well it's not that great just honestly it's probably 30 to 40% and and I'm okay with that it seems like a low number but let me ask you how how many of your clients take your advice you know probably not that many either we we um you know we're at certain points how many times has somebody that loves you and knows you really well, and there's something that they think you ought to do different in your life, and you have resisted that advice over and over again, and they have come right out and told you something or they've intimated it, hinted at it uh 20 times, and at some point they're going to quit, maybe at some point you'll take the advice, only because at that Number 22 instance, you were ready to hear it. Uh, we all orbit closer and closer to the truth, and we're only really ready for it at certain points, and it's really hard to predict that. I am, you know, what's really interesting about your question uh, is to think about democracy, right? Because democracy is based on this assumption that most of the people are right. And I don't believe that. I think democracy is a fantastic system until it until, um, I don't know, 50 years into it, when we start making self-serving voting decisions, uh, avoiding some of the tougher calls that we should be making. So it's a fascinating topic to think about.
0: Hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, this has been really, really mind blowing. I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours and we'd barely scratch the surface. No, it's been really fun. I, I'm
1: sorry if I've droned on about something. <laughs> you kind of asked some very pointed questions that got me all riled up to think about. I, I hope it's been useful to your, to your audience. Yeah. I, I'm, I really, really, really enjoy the opportunity just to chat with you. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely. Well, I have one final question for you, which okay. I, I know you've heard me ask, and it's how we finish all of our interviews with Data Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Hmm. I probably, you know, I keep going back to that word um unignorable um and I think it's somebody that has the courage to have a point of view that they can support and I um you know I love talking with people that have a deeply held perspective even if I don't agree with it and so I want to be touched by people. I want to be in the orbit of people who have thought carefully enough about something to have a point of view and can explain that to me, even if I disagree with it. I feel like that's where I'm going to learn. That's what makes creatives most
0: unmistakable in my mind. Hmm. Well, I think that makes a, a perfect and fitting end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to?
1: Probably uh the most recent book is at expertise.is, expertise.is, and then um my consulting work is davidcbaker.com.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring?